You know, as a kid, I can remember being both fascinated and fearful of quicksand. Quicksand was, it was not all that common in the uh, suburbs of Colorado Springs, where I spent most of the golden years of my childhood. And so my exposure to death by quicksand came primarily from the movies that I would see on television. Uh, the scene that was typical regarding quicksand was, was you have a man caught in there. Uh, he's stuck. He can't get out. He's begging those who are surrounded by it for help. And so they're trying branches or he's reaching for vines, all to no avail. And the more he struggles, the more what happens? The more he sinks down into the quicksand until eventually he disappears. And usually all that was left on that smooth surface of that sinister sand was just his hat or something like that. And then the sand sat there waiting for its next victim. You know, as it turns out, the 1960s were the peak years for quicksand in movies. I didn't know this. Did you know one in 35 films made during the 60s used quicksand in their plots, including such movies as Lawrence of Arabia and even The Monkees? So quicksand is simply ordinary sand that is so saturated with water that the friction between the particles is reduced. It makes them unable to support any weight. A physicist, though, from the University of Amsterdam, he did some experimentation with quicksand. And you'll be happy to know that he determined that the chances of a person being completely sucked down into the sand is completely nil. His experiments showed that the furthest that you would go down is roughly halfway. And so should you get caught in some quicksand in the near future... Just relax. Wait for help to come. You're not going to go under. You're not going to die. So nevertheless, as a result of all these movies, there is a perception regarding quicksand that has come about. So quicksand trapping a person, slowly sucking them down, right? it's taken root in our psyches. It's, lead, it's led to a metaphorical meaning in our culture regarding quicksand. We refer to a dangerous situation or a hidden trap from which escape is difficult or even impossible as quicksand. And the subject that we're beginning to focus on this morning, it could easily be described as the quicksand of hedonism. Hedonism is the unbridled pursuit of self-indulgence, of fun, of entertainment or pleasure. Now, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's nothing wrong with fun. It's God's good design for man to find pleasure in many things. But hedonism, hedonism is like quicksand. See, it pulls you in, it sucks you down, and it's very difficult to escape. From its clutches. Those who make the pursuit of pleasure their goal in life 
have little idea of the trap that they are getting themselves into. You know, commercials, they present us with image after image of people who've been made happy because they own something, because they eat something, because they wear something, because they go somewhere. Pleasurable. But see, those smiles, they've been bought and paid for by the company that's trying to convince you to buy what they are selling. And no matter how much money that you spend pursuing pleasure throughout your life, all you will end up in the end, if that's what you do, all you will end up in the end is an impoverished soul. And this was the conclusion came to by a man who performed one of the greatest experiments of all time. He put hedonism, pursuing pleasure, to the test. Now, what made this experiment so significant is that the man performing the test had unrivaled authority, he possessed unlimited wealth, and he had uncommon insight. So this this trifecta of legendary power, money, and wisdom, it meant that he could explore the benefits of pleasure like no other. This man, of course, was King Solomon, the son of of King David, and he was the last king to rule over Israel in, from Jerusalem. And the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's memoirs, written about a time in the latter portion of his 40-year reign as king when he decided to pull from his abundant resources to look into what life had to offer. He decided to exhaustively explore what satisfaction the things of this world might bring him. And to describe the boundaries of his search, he coined the phrase, under the sun. He's going to be looking everywhere under the sun for purpose and meaning and happiness in life. His search, these boundaries are under the sun. In other words, they're confined to an earthly point of view, leaving God out of the equation. This was his grand experiment. Now, why would someone like Solomon do this? We, we know that he wrote the book of Proverbs. We see how he is described in Scripture. And so the, the question that comes to our mind, at least it should be, is why would Solomon even do this? Well, it's just good to note that being wise does not guarantee that you cannot still choose to do foolish things. Never put it past your heart to deceive you into doing things that you know are foolish and wrong. And in Solomon's case, we're told in 1 Kings 11 that he loved foreign women. God had warned Israel not to associate with foreign women. He, for, he, this is what he told them. For they will surely turn your hearts <clears throat> away after their gods. And that's exactly what we know happened. If you know the story of Solomon, you know that's exactly what happened. In 1 Kings 11, it says this of Solomon. We're told that Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines and his wives turned his heart away. 
For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. See, his father had been a man after God's own heart. Solomon was a man somewhat after God's heart as a result of his marriages. No problem necessarily with the women in and of themselves. It was that what these women brought into the marriage, seven, well, a thousand women? What's your name again? I can't, what's your, I can't even imagine that. You know, but they brought their gods with them. And that turned his heart away. So Ecclesiastes is about what Solomon learned from all of his wanderings. Written presumably after he had repented. And he'd come not only back to his senses, but back to his God. And so he sums up his findings of understanding life under the sun, as he calls it. He sums it up in three words. All is vanity. All is vanity. The Hebrew word, Havel, means vapor, air, steam, breath. And Solomon uses the word metaphorically to, re- to refer to things that are elusive, superficial, transitory, unreliable. And his, his warning is that when you search this world for meaning, but you leave God out of the equation, all your efforts will end in frustration. Why? Because all is vanity apart from God. Only in Christ will man find true meaning and happiness in life under the sun. That's the big message of Ecclesiastes. Only in Christ will man find true meaning and happiness in life under the sun. And this is the gospel according to Ecclesiastes. Now, something to keep in mind is that under Solomon's responsible rule, he had made Israel a great and a wealthy nation. And so in the latter years of his reign, he didn't really have as many great responsibilities as earlier on. He had all the money he wanted, all the power he wanted. There wasn't much that needed still to be accomplished. There were no wars to fight. There were no nations to conquer. And so it was in the absence of responsibilities and with a heart toward God that had grown distant and cold that he began to wonder about life. Solomon's initial effort, it was to use his great wisdom to understand the purpose of human existence. But his search for this knowledge about life, it proved futile. It only brought him frustration and grief. And he didn't give up after that, though. He decided instead to keep looking. Maybe the key to to a happy and meaningful life Well, maybe it's found in the many pleasurable things that are in this world. He says in verse 1, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. So he's speaking to himself. So enjoy yourself. Now, the terms that Solomon uses here, they give a clear perspective on what he intended to do. The first word for test, right? He says, um, come now, I will test you. And this word for test, it shows this was not something that he stumbled upon. This was a deliberate effort. A synonym would be experiment. Let me see what I can learn about life by personally experimenting with all kinds of pleasures. It's the same word that, that is used to describe how God tested Abraham's faith 
by telling him to sacrifice Isaac. So this test, it was calculated. It was purposeful. And the word for pleasure here is, that's what he's going to be testing. I'm going to test pleasure. And the word, it means joy. It means mirth, gladness in festivity. And the same word was used to describe the rejoicing and the festivities of the people when Solomon was anointed as king. It says in 1 Kings chapter 1, right after uh, when they're celebrating that Solomon is king, it says the people were playing on flutes and they were rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. So this is, this is great pleasure, great rejoicing we're talking about here. That's all contained in this word. And so Solomon is going to explore all aspects of life that bring joy and people generally consider to be fun and enjoyable. And the charge that he gives himself, he says, enjoy yourself. And indeed, he shall. But he's going to explore those things that people do for fun. And since Solomon did this thousands of years ago, well, unfortunately, these are all things that none of us can relate to today. Actually, that's not the case at all. We find that the things that people did for fun in Solomon's day, they are the exact same things that people do for fun today. Things like laughter or comedy. Things like drugs and alcohol. Buying things. Art. Nature. Sex. As Solomon already has concluded about man, he says there's nothing new under the sun. And that includes the things that we seek out in the world to have fun and find pleasure. So I, I trust that you can see the relevance of this subject. With all our advances, you know, we have more leisure time than previous generations. We're not working sun up to sun down out in the fields just trying to scratch a living out of the ground. Many of us just work from home. We, we get out of bed and we sit down and we work and we clock out and we go back to bed. Put Netflix on. What are, what are many people doing with all this extra leisure time? All, and not only that, you know, we've also become extremely affluent, especially in the West. And increasingly in the East as well. What are we doing with all this extra time? What are we doing with all this disposable income? It's being directed towards hedonistic pursuits. But the pursuit of pleasure, it's not just unique to us in America. Solomon shows it's common to man. And what's just as common are the results of Solomon's experiment. And you see it at the end here of verse 1. He says, and behold, it too was futility. Behold. Behold, it too was futility. Pleasure did not satisfy his soul any more than wisdom did. It too was Hevel. And each of these pursuits after pleasure seemed to hold out the promise that this was what life was all about. But it didn't last. In the end, it turned out to be as substantial as that steam that you see rising off the ground in the morning sun. You can see it. But it goes away. So the title of this sermon is The Futility of Pursuing Pleasure. The Futility of Pursuing Pleasure. And here how I, here's how I've summed up what Solomon shows us in these first 11 
verses of chapter 2. Forsake the pursuit of pleasures that cannot satisfy and find lasting joy in the goodness of God. Forsake the pursuit of pleasures that cannot satisfy and find lasting joy in the goodness of God. Our first task is to learn the futility of pursuing pleasure. And from there, we'll try to understand God's purpose for pleasure. And may that then make us acutely aware of our need, lastly, to seek the God who created pleasure. Okay, so all of what Solomon writes in verses 1 through 11 is meant to teach us an important lesson. And so let's be sure that that we are good students. This book was written to students, so let's be a good student. Let's be a good student of the preacher here, as he calls himself, the preacher. And let's do this. Let's be sure to learn the futility of pursuing pleasure. We need to learn the futility of pursuing pleasure. Now, in studying the Bible, one of the helpful techniques to use is to observe repeated words and phrases. Repeated words, repeated phrases, repeated themes. The biblical authors, they didn't have a way to do bold or italics, right? So a common way to emphasize a point was to repeat it multiple times. It's like saying, hey, don't miss this. So I want to do a quick group exercise here. I want to give you all of 10 seconds. All of 10 seconds. And I want you with your eyes quickly to scan through verses 1 through 11. And I want you to pick up the words that Solomon repeats. They're not all the same words, but they're all the same idea. So look at your Bibles and go. Okay, that's 10 seconds. Now, that wasn't very long, but I'm guessing that some of you, maybe if not all of you, could see it. The most repeated word was I. Look again. Look at it again and scan through it. It's repeated 22 times. But repeated just slightly more were the words me, my, and myself. Those three together, kind of all the same thing, they're they're repeated 24 times. Now, in my New American Standard translation, these 11 verses, if I counted right, have 279 words. 48 of those words are either I, me, my, or myself. Two of them are you or yourself, but he's talking to himself. So we can add those to it. That's 48 times when he's when he's referring to himself. Now, granted, Solomon is writing autobiographically here, so he has to refer to himself at times. But nowhere else in this book do you find the same degree of concentration of these personal pronouns as what we find here when Solomon is talking about his pursuit after pleasure. Now, could that just be coincidence? Sure. But I think you can make a pretty good case that Solomon is repeating himself. He's a wise guy. He's repeating himself to make a subtle point here about those who make pleasure their goal in life. Seeking pleasure is self-focused. 
Seeking pleasure is self-focused. Hedonism is seductively self-centered. By definition, those who pursue, pursue personal pleasure, they're focused on their own good. Solomon told, him, told himself, he said, enjoy yourself. Pleasure is all about who? You. Don't focus on what needs to be done. Don't focus on others. Focus on yourself and what you want. And how ironic that those who make their own pleasure the main goal for themselves, to live for themselves, not for God, not for considering others, well, they're going to experience joys, yeah, but they're going to be temporary, and in the end, they're going to be denied ultimate satisfaction. You've made joy your goal, and you're not going to get it in the end. It's like the child on the playground, right? Everyone's in a circle doing the ball, bouncing back and forth, and that one child gets it and he holds on to it. And they come over like, hey, bounce the ball, man. Mm-mm. And he won't let them give it back. And what do all the kids do? They get mad at him, they yell at him, and then they go away. And there he is standing with his ball. He's like, you know, why did he take the ball? He wanted the ball. He wanted to please himself. And what did he get in the end? A lot of alone time out on the recess and a bunch of kids who hate him now. That's Havel. Not getting what you think you're going to get. Because it's not there. You can, th- you can see it's there, but it's not there in how you're going after it. One reason pursuing pleasure is so futile is because it's so self-focused. Contrast that with Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. The one who said to his disciples, you know, I will wash your feet. And if I being the teacher, right? I forget how he said it. Don't, don't quote me on this. This is Nick's paraphrase. Right? I have washed your feet. You should go and do that to others. Now, before we go any further, we should understand that in Ecclesiastes, pleasure is not evil. In fact, even in this chapter, the preacher calls it a gift of God. In chapter 2, he says, For to a person who is good in God's sight, he has given as a gift, is the idea, he has given as a gift wisdom and knowledge and joy. And later on in the book, Solomon encourages his readers in chapter 9. He says, go then, eat your bread in happiness and, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. And so pleasure itself is, is not wrong. It's not against God in any way to be happy. Have you ever heard the definition that H.L. Mencken gave of the Puritans? He says, Puritanism is the haunting belief that someone somewhere is happy. That's not Christianity. That's not our God. So the problem is not pleasure. The problem is how he is how Solomon sought to find meaning in pleasure under the sun. And at the end of this section in verse 11, he writes, Behold, all is vanity. It's striving after wind. There's no profit under the sun. In other words, he sought pleasure apart from God without taking God into account. This is what Solomon 
wants us to see. Secondly, seeking pleasure apart from God is futile. Seeking pleasure apart from God is futile. Hedonism is, first of all, it's self-focused. But secondly, it's futile. And in verses 2 through 8, Solomon lists all the various pleasures that he tried. And what's crazy is that when you consider what he's describing, as I mentioned earlier, you would think that this is some contemporary author talking about the pleasures that we are pursuing today, right now, not a man writing thousands of years ago. First, it says he experimented with laughter. I think we could say also that he's talking about fun in general. Because the word here for pleasure is merriment and joy. But he says in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is madness, and behold, uh, uh, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? So it's hard, it's not hard to see why Solomon would experiment with a good time. Because our perception of those who are always laughing, joking around, who are always lighthearted and playful, having... It seems like they have they found a way not to take life too seriously. And that's appealing. The cares and the concerns of life, well, they don't, dis- they don't seem to be as burdensome for them. Have they found the secret to living a happy and successful life? It's kind of like how we feel when we're on, if you go on vacation in Hawaii. What does everybody think who goes on vacation in Hawaii? Oh, man, if I could just live here. Just be like this all the time. And we just seem to forget the fact that, A, we're on vacation, and B, Hawaii is an island where everything has to be brought to it. It's super expensive to live there. Now, someone can contradict that, I suppose, but it's never the same. Vacation versus the rest of life, it's never the same. Now, let's, even though generally fun is in in place here, let's just focus on laughter. What do these names all have in common? As I read them, Lenny Bruce, John Belushi, Chris Farley, Greg Geraldo, Mitch Hedberg, and Robin Williams. What do they all have in common? Well, first of all, they're all comedians. And second of all, they all sadly succumb to drug overdose, depression, and suicide. So if laughter is the key to life, these guys would still be alive. You know that due to the high number of premature deaths, Amongst comedians, the Laugh Factory, a comedy club in Hollywood, they went so far as to hire an on-site psychologist. Isn't it ironic, again, that we would turn to comedians to make us laugh about life, and yet many of them are struggling with how to live their own lives. You know, I remember when I was growing up, some of you may remember this name, my mom always read in in the newspaper the column by the humorist Irma Bombeck. Some of you might remember her name. She wrote about funny things, funny observations of life from like 1965 around to 1996 when she died. Here's what she once said. Quote, There is a thin line that separates laughter and pain, comedy and tragedy, humor and hurt. End quote. I think she's right. Laughter, it seems often to be a way to try and cope with the pain that's in our lives. And so the preacher turned to laughter, and yet it failed to make any lasting difference. 
He tells us what he found in verse 2. Instead of laughter, it's madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Now, in calling laughter madness, he's not saying it's the same as like mental instability, like maniacal laughter. Like, <laughs> right. In Scripture, both madness and folly are often associated with moral perversity. Just pause for a second and think about how much comedy that we're tempted to laugh at that is really just reveling in unrighteousness. Did you know that one of the riskiest things that you can do as a Christian is go to a comedy club? You are almost guaranteed to hear jokes about things that shouldn't even be mentioned in public. Now, thankfully, there are some good, clean and funny even, right, comedians. We don't always have comedy and Christian put together. There's a lot of, you know, courtesy laughs given to Christian comedians. But there are some ones that just bust my gut. They're so hilarious. And as much as I may enjoy them... Nothing they say helps me understand life and what it's about. Comedy, funny things friends might say, funny videos that we watch on Instagram and share with each other. All of these things are genuinely entertaining. And sometimes there's something that makes me laugh until I cry. Now, I'm glad for those moments of comic relief. Solomon, though, he wrote something interesting about laughter in in Proverbs 14. He says, even... In laughter, the heart may be in pain. And the end of joy may be grief. Laughter may bring some relief in the midst of our problems, but laughter alone can't solve them. And Solomon, he's not saying laughter is good or bad. He's not saying it's right or wrong. He's not even telling us what we should or shouldn't laugh at. Though he does seem to be suggesting that some of the things that we laughed at easily drift towards the immoral. He's experimenting with fun and laughter in order to determine if that is what life should be about. Can fun and laughter help us find lasting meaning or pleasure in life? Is the best way to go through life making a joke out of everything? Well, Solomon gets to the main problem about laughter. He says, what does it accomplish? Laughter has both its place and its limits. So laughter can bless us. In the next chapter, he even says, there are times under the sun when the only appropriate thing to do is laugh. He says, there is a time to laugh. And you've probably heard that laughter is the best medicine. right? There's certainly some truth to that folksy bit of wisdom. The first time that you know that I dealt with death in my family, close to me, right, was when my grandfather died when I was 14 years old. Like any teenager encountering death, I struggled to know how I should feel about my grandfather dying. So after the funeral service, uh, the family went to one of my grandpa's favorite restaurants for lunch. And so my cousins, who were from out of town, they were four um, four boys, um, we were all sitting together, you know, we pushed the tables together. So we're all sitting together as one large family group, but I'm right near my cousins. They're all older than me. And so everything they do is funny to me. And we're sitting around and before long, I'm laughing at them. But how am I feeling inside? I'm feeling guilty. Should I be laughing right now? I mean, I just came from my grandfather's funeral. 
And the first couple of times we laughed out loud enough, you know, to be heard, I would sneak a glance over to my grandmother and you know, just see how she's reacting to this. And she, you, you couldn't hide the heaviness of, the, of it all. But at the same time, she didn't seem upset that we were laughing. She even seemed somewhat glad to know that the sorrow was not too heavy. So laughing and having fun, it can make times of heavy sorrow a bit easier to carry or to get through. But can laughter really heal us from all the things that afflict us under the sun? No, it can't. And while we dwell under the sun, Solomon will tell us in chapter 7, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. See, even Jesus, who was full of joy, was prophesied to be the man of sorrows. And there's going to come a time when the one who bore all our sorrows on the cross, he will wipe them away and he will replace them with true and never-ending joy. But until then... There is too much sorrow under the sun still. And as one commentary put it, laughter cannot save. It too needs a Savior. Now the next pleasure the preacher experiments with is alcohol. Same as laughter and fun, this is still just as popular a way today to find enjoyment in life and to escape from life's troubles as it has been for thousands of years. Fun, laughter, And alcohol, they all tend to go together. Uh, King Solomon says in verse 3, he says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. So the big question about this verse is trying to interpret just how far Solomon went in his testing of alcohol. The phrase, to stimulate my body with wine, that kind of sounds generic. Uh, I think the ESV captures the idea a bit better. It says, to cheer my body with wine. So that seems to suggest some level of intoxication. And this is how, uh, this is how so many people right, who do choose and turn to alcohol and drugs today, they're seeking to do what? They're seeking to alter their minds their moods, so that they can, you know, really have fun. Because I don't like how I am when I'm not that way, and so I turn to alcohol, I turn to drugs to put me in a state of mind so that I can finally have fun. And what happens? Your mind is changed, your mood is altered. So rather than receiving wine as a gift and drinking it with thanksgiving to God, Solomon possibly is saying that he just simply took it to himself like a selfish pleasure. And what further suggests that this is what Solomon did is the extent of his experimenting. He said, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine until I could see what good there is for the sons of men. This seems to indicate that Solomon intentionally, right, with my mind, he experimented with different levels of intoxication using his God-given wisdom to evaluate the experience. And it was not just one experiment. It was enough 
times, he says, until I can see what good there. I got to do this experiment enough times so I have enough data to make a conclusion. So he kept testing different levels of intoxication and then using wisdom to assess what good there was in it for himself. If this is what he's saying, then it would be it would make what he also says as a form of, of basically sinful justification, claiming that his mind was guiding him wisely. Let me just say this public service announcement. It is never, never wise to personally investigate sin. And we know Solomon saw intoxication with wine as foolish from Proverbs chapter 20. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is unwise. Now, also just another thing in general about understanding the scriptures. So we're reading possibly, and I say possibly because you can't really say for absolute certain. Another thing to keep in mind when we read the scriptures is that just because Solomon does this doesn't mean that it's good. Any more than we should think that polygamy is good because many of the patriarchs had more than one wife. God has a design. And sometimes he just tells us what happens. He doesn't make an editorial comment about it in the text we're reading. So just because you read someone had many wives doesn't mean polygamy is a good idea. Just because Solomon is drinking wine and exploring how he feels about it doesn't go, hmm, hmm. Solomon was wise. He tested drunkenness. Maybe I should too. No, that would be sinfully stupid. Don't do it. God's very clear. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a sin. You'll never be blessed by pursuing sin. You'll never be blessed by foolishly pressing the line and seeing how close you can get to sin. So, there is another way to interpret these verses, though. They see the fact that he says his mind was guiding him wisely as indicating that his wine taste, tasting was more of a controlled experiment. He was contending with wine, but all the while keeping sobriety in order to test it out. Soberly, thoughtfully assessing his experience to see, well, what kind of joy does this have in it for me? In other words, he wasn't being a drunkard. He was being a connoisseur. A connoisseur, carefully exploring the pleasures and the benefits that wine can bring. If possibly Solomon... Might have had a vacation home in Napa. That's the idea. The third possibility is that both of these are true. He tested and he tasted fine wine. He even pushed the limits a bit, even a lot of it, in order to fully assess the pleasures of alcohol. As I said, it's difficult to know for sure. So whether he knew when to put the glass down or even if he got drunk, his point still is the same. His point is the same. He was looking for pleasure in alcohol while he still had the time. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. He references the few years of their lives. And this is a theme that we're going to see over and over again in Ecclesiastes. It's, namely, it's the brevity of life. Even with all our medical advances in treatments, and medications, we are living a lot longer than previous generations. But it doesn't matter how long you live. At some point, we all measure life as being short. 
I'm saying that a lot right now, and I'm only 50 and some. And I'm saying, I'm feeling it. It's short. You know that the brevity of life is one of the primary motivations for people to pursue pleasure? It's probably one of the primary reasons why people have their midlife crises. Man, look at all I've got to show. There's a wife and a couple of kids and a desk job. I need to go buy a Ferrari. Life is short. I need to do whatever makes me happy. See, we all agree with the life is short part. Solomon has decided to test the validity of the do whatever makes you happy part. Solomon's message in Ecclesiastes is precisely because life is short that you need to be careful how you pursue your pleasures. Now, later in the book, Solomon notes that wine makes life merry. M-E-R-R-Y. Merry. Happy. And it's something to be enjoyed when your heart is merry. But Solomon cautions against making alcohol your friend. Here's how Solomon says wine. Uh, I, I quoted Proverbs uh, 20, verse 1 earlier, but it's worth repeating. Here's how Solomon says wine and booze will treat you. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink, a brawler. Alcohol, he says, it will lead you astray. He says in Proverbs 23, he says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. And the Super Bowl is famous for its commercials, right? And there are always several that are advertising the fun times you can have with beer. I don't imagine any are going to spend advertising money depicting all the other activities that go along with those who seek pleasure in alcohol. Can you imagine Super Bowl commercials showing alcoholics anonymous meetings? Or a miserable man hugging a toilet at 3 a.m.? Or a drunken father raging at his wife and his children. Or a sobbing man who's losing his job because he was drunk on the job. See, the Bible is clear that wine is a gift from God. In Psalm 104, God is praised for his care over creation. He's the one who causes the grass and the plants to grow. And wine, he says, which makes man's heart glad. But we must accept that this gift, even in moderation, it can delight us, but it can't satisfy us. You know, in Nehemiah on the day that Ezra, uh, he read the word of God to the people and they were we- it says they were weeping with joy at, having hearing, at hearing the words of God. Uh, he told them, set this day aside as holy to the Lord. And then Nehemiah, he instructed them, he said, go, eat the fat. Drink of the sweet wine, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved. But he tells them that the reason for their rejoicing, it's not the wine. He says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So for this reason, the Lord calls to us. He's calling to us through the prophet Isaiah. He says, come. Come. Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine 
and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. But can you see he's not talking about the stuff that sits on table. Now Solomon, Solomon understands our thirst. He had it too. But listen to his wisdom that he's gained. If because life is short, you are looking to lay hold of happiness, you will not find it in a bottle, whether as a connoisseur or as a drunkard. But Jesus invites you to dine with Him. He invites you to eat freely from His bounty and be satisfied. And His gracious command to you through the Apostle Paul is do not get drunk with wine. He says that's just going to lead to waste. He says instead be filled with the Spirit. Jesus came into this world to invite you. He stood up. He stood up in the midst of a great feast and a great celebration. And he cried out. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. See, God has a heart for those who are thirsty from living life under the sun. And their thirst for meaning, right? It has driven them to look for life in pleasure, only to get caught and bogged down in the quicksand of hedonism. Jesus has a heart for the pleasure seekers who are being driven mad by their thirsty desires. Do either of those describe your pursuits in life right now? It's to describe where you're looking constantly. Don't look to laughter. Don't go to the bottle. Go to Christ. He's the fountain of living water. He offers you the deepest satisfaction, the sweetest refreshment and joy forever. And how does He do this? By offering to fully pay the wages of your sin including the evil of thinking that something in the world that He created could be better than the Creator Himself. See, Jesus told a parable about the kingdom of heaven, saying it's like a treasure that's been hidden in the field, which a man found and then hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And Jesus requires the same wonderful thing of you. He says, forsake the pursuit of pleasures that cannot satisfy. They will only lead to misery and despair. And find instead lasting joy in the goodness of God. Let's pray. Lord, these are your words and they are true. These are the results of Solomon's own personal looking for good or for ill. This is such an example of you causing good from all things. Even Solomon's wandering from you, you caused to be good for us, even thousands of years later. This is wisdom. This is gospel wisdom. And the question is, is are we listening? Will we heed it? Spirit of God, I pray that you will move upon people's hearts. 
those who maybe like Solomon have grown cold and distant and their heart has been lured away from you and they're beginning to look in places that they shouldn't. Shouldn't because you've told them not to and shouldn't because it's not going to give them what they need or what they're looking for. And for those who don't know you, who've had nowhere else to look, oh Lord, show them that there's something far better in Christ. Draw them to Him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.